Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Climate change is readily apparent this year, generating surprising heat waves in the Pacific Northwest, scores of wildfires across the West, and an ongoing series of tropical storms and hurricanes spinning out of the Atlantic and barreling into the East and Gulf coasts of the United States. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. The effects of climate change aren't absent from the national park system either. To discuss some of those impacts, we're joined by Frank Dean, President and CEO of the Yosemite Conservancy, and Corey Gearing, the Conservancy's lead naturalist. Welcome to The Traveler, guys. Thank Thank you, Kurt. Now, Frank, you've been at the Yosemite Conservancy since 2015 after a long career with the National Park Service. I'm guessing you've seen more than a few impacts of climate change, both during your Park Service career and and now at the Conservancy and your work in Yosemite. That's for sure, Kurt. I mean, we just see that the summers are getting hotter and longer and uh, wildfire behavior like we've never seen before. I was a wildfire fighter as well, and it's just behavior is just so different. As we speak, the the fires in Lake Tahoe today are uh, just... uh, Coming, it's actually the second time in history that a fire has crested over the top of the Sierra. And the first time in history was two weeks ago from the Dixie Fire. So it's just unprecedented kind of behavior. Yosemite's kind of been spared this year um, somewhat when you look up north to to Lassen Volcanic and how the Dixie Fire roared across that. But um, certainly in the the past uh, few years, Yosemite has really been uh, impacted either by actual wildfires in the park or... uh, the smoke coming over from some of the fires to the west of the park and south of the park. Yeah, Corey might know, but I think there's there's several lightning strike fires in the park in Yosemite, but they're relatively small. They're not, they've not kind of grown in huge size. So we've been fortunate in Yosemite this year. Is that right, Corey? Yeah, that's correct. We've we've mostly had small, as you said, lightning strike fires that are burning low and slow through the forest. Uh, which are the good fires that we want to see. We haven't seen any large mega fires or, or hot and fast fires starting here in, in the park uh, this year. Now, some people might say, well, geez, you know, it's summertime. We always have wildfires out west. Um, how do we know that climate change is, is really driving these more so than, than it has in past years? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, fire uh, is is natural to the landscape here. Fires existed in, in the west for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, millions of years. But what we're really seeing change uh, is the types of fires that we're having. You know, a good fire, a healthy fire here in California is a fire that burns low and slow through the forests. And unfortunately, what we're seeing because of human-caused climate change are the drier environments with heavier fuel loads on the forest floor that are causing these hot, fast fires, these mega fires that are burning through uh, the forests and essentially destroying ecosystems. I know up at uh, Lassen, they were telling me that the um, the moisture levels in trees were just incredibly low. Um, and the combustibility was incredibly high, 95 to, to 99%. Is it, do you see similar situations in Yosemite? Well, for sure, because we're south of Lassen and it's it's even warmer. And, and Sequoia National Park to the south of us has seen even more extreme conditions uh, in recent years, as as we know from the, the Creek Fire and the, uh, the the fire in the Sequoia National Monument last year, where it was devastating. 
Now, are, are you seeing things bounce back? I know, you know, I, I'm an old guy. Um, I was on the ground in Yellowstone back in 88, and uh, by that summer I was seeing, um, you know, the, the fireweed coming back and things greening up. And uh, in the park recently, um, it's amazing how quickly the lodgepole forests, I mean, relatively quickly, how the lodgepole forests have come back, not only from the 88 fires, but from uh, more recent fires. I mean, is climate change can you tell whether it's impacting how these burned areas are coming back? Yeah, we can definitely see that in a lot of the fire followers, especially in you know plants that are well adapted to these fire ecosystems. Um, where the real effects come in are where we can see different wildlife, uh, such as Pacific fishers. Uh, you know, Pacific fishers are highly impacted from these major fires that cause habitat loss. Um, in fact, recently, as of May 2020, Pacific Fisher was just put on the federally endangered list, primarily because of habitat loss driven largely by wildfires. Now, earlier this year, The Traveler, we reported on how climate change has impacted giant sequoia trees in California and, and sequoia in Kings Canyon and also in, in Yosemite. The Conservancy, you guys are helping the Park Service investigate what is killing the trees, right? We are. There's a few grants uh, this year and last year that we've been providing to not only Yosemite, but a little bit of help to the Sequoia National Park as well. Uh, obviously, the, the, there's a lot of landscape scale issue here with sequoias across the Sierra. We're trying to figure out through the Park Service, really, with the support of our donors, is what's what's the effect from the, from the drought? And it looks like the recent results are showing that despite a couple of blips of decent winters in the last 10 years, we're really... The sequoias are reacting to a 10-year drought cycle right now, or a period of 10 years. So that's causing beetles and other uh, pests to have more of a, an inroads to, uh, get to the trees when they're more vulnerable. And then, of course, with the drier conditions, drought conditions, uh, they're more susceptible to wildfire, particularly if there's not been um, some incremental fire allowed into the grove to, to clear out the duff and so forth. So, yes, uh, I mean, some people are saying it's, uh, they call the giant sequoias, the, the, the granddaddy trees, they call them the monarchs. So some people are saying this is the end of the monarchy uh, because you had such a devastating loss last year with uh, the fire in uh, Sequoia National Monument. Where, uh, about 15% of the total sequoia trees in the Sierra were, were wiped out. What are you seeing in, uh, in Yosemite? I mean, they're such huge trees. Do they show signs of distress? I know here in the the Rocky Mountain region, the inner part of the the Rockies, that the aspen trees really are showing the distress of a lack of moisture this year. Um, do, do you do sequoias have any outward signs of distress? Or you might know that from what I've heard, the uh, in the crowns of the sequoias were seen browning and uh, some dying off in the crowns, which was surprising because we always thought these trees, we used to joke they're too big to fail. They've been around for 2000 years, nothing seems to get to them. But in recent years, we've seen otherwise healthy trees starting to brown uh, in, the, in the crown. So that's, that's a sign that they're stressed. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, we're definitely seeing, you know, browning in the crowns. Um, and, and as Frank was saying, you know, just in Yosemite National Park alone, we've seen, in recent years, seven sequoias die here in Yosemite National Park, uh, 30 sequoias throughout Kings Canyon. 
uh, and sequoia. And so these are trees that have survived for thousands of years. You know, the, the monarchs of the forest. So studying what, what's happening to these trees, I think there are answers that we're still going to find by studying sort of what's happening right now, not only with lack of moisture content, but I think a big contributing factor too is the lack of snow levels that we're seeing uh, at the elevation ranges that sequoias grow in. Uh, you know, these are sequoias that trees that can absorb 500 gallons of water a day in their spring growing season. And if that snowpack isn't there, there isn't the water for them to absorb uh, in that growing season. Those seven trees that died in the park, what did they die from? I know you had a, a wind event earlier this year that, that blew some over. Is that the seven you're referring to? or? Yeah, we're doing studies right now actually to determine, you know, was that because of drought? Um, also studying, could it be insects that might have brought these trees down? Uh, Yosemite Conservancy is funding right now research of looking at some of the samples of branches that have fallen during the Mona wind event in January and seeing, you know, if it was beetles that got into the trees before the wind event, or if it's beetles that got into the trees after the limbs have fallen down. So it's continuing research that we're keeping a close eye on. You guys also, I believe, are um, funding research into white pine in in the park, um, another majestic tree that um, has a long history with uh, the the growth of the United States as a country. Um, back east, they were harvested for uh, the masts of ships. Um, what's the situation with white pines in Yosemite? Yeah, white pines are a species, you know, found above 10,000 feet here in Yosemite. It's also a species that can live over a thousand years. And um, we're, you know, they, they play okay, a okay. vital role. Just a second. So we're talking white bark pines, not white pines? Oh, sorry, white bark pines, yes. Okay, I was confused. Okay. Don't have white bark pines back east. Okay. <laughs> so white bark pines, what's, what's going on with them in Yosemite? The Methuselah trees. That's right. Yeah, the white bark pines, a species, you know, live over uh, 10,000 feet in elevation here and uh, can live over a thousand years. And uh, they play an important, important role here in the ecosystems. Um, not only do they provide um, protection against erosion, uh, they also uh, help regulate snowpack. And uh, they're, uh, they also rely on a bird species here, the Clark's Nutcracker, one of my favorite birds, uh, Lucifraga columbiana. And uh, Clark's nutcrackers help disperse seeds of the white bark pine throughout the range. And um, we're seeing a die off of white bark pine, not only because of drought and because of increasing temperatures, but also because of blister rust, which is a large concern. Uh, so Yosemite Conservancy is funding research uh, of collecting seeds from the white bark pine and uh, trying to find genetics of certain white bark pine that might be more resistant to blister rust. Right, right. I know they've uh, been doing similar work in, in Yellowstone, where um, the whitebark pine is also particularly important for uh, grizzly bears. Um, the seeds are a very high-protein, calorie-rich seed that the, the bears rely on. And are you seeing much success in, in cultivating um, resistant, blister rust-resistant trees? I think it's too early to say. Uh, they're just starting this project. And, uh, but it does kind of bring up an interesting point I wanted to make, Kurt, about NPS, National Park Service policy. As you probably know, in the last 50 years or so, the sort of the philosophy overriding has been let natural processes prevail and don't intervene. And this is kind of a pivot from the old days of feeding the bears and, you know, sort of more um, 
maybe well-intended, but maybe not as science-based kind of park management. So now we have a situation where in the 60s, before I was a ranger, they had blister rust crews that would come in and try to eradicate this, this you know, non-native you know, scourge that was affecting the pines. I'm not sure how effective that was. But, but now with climate change, we, you, know, you kind of wonder, how does the park uh, square that policy? If, if the natural processes are prevailing, but they're man-induced, climate change is, is really accelerating the change. Does that cause the Park Service to intervene more than maybe they would normally? So, you know, a sort of extreme example would be, do you, do you uh, irrigate the sequoia trees? Uh, do, you, do you kind of provide more water to uh, get them through this period? Or, you know, in the case of uh, fires in the grove, the Mariposa Grove, for example, has been treated every year. There's some small management fire that's allowed to go in there to reduce fuel at the base of the trees. That has not happened at the Merced Grove, the smaller grove in the, in the park, but we're going to start doing that next year uh, to protect that grove as well. So it does, it's an interesting question, you know, with glaciers retreating, Joshua trees uh, may be threatened, and these iconic species that are the namesake of national parks, you know, what does uh, park management do over the next few years as climate change starts to really take hold? You know, you raise a a very interesting topic that um, has has come into my attention with what's going on at Isle Royal National Park, where you had the the wolves basically dying off because we weren't seeing the ice bridges that would allow new rural wolves with uh, more diverse genetics enter that ecosystem. And so you had the Park Service deciding to in effect, manage that ecosystem, not let natural processes proceed and, and bring in wolves. And did that go against the uh, general principle that you let natural processes proceed? And with climate change, the I've heard the argument that, well, climate change is driven by man. That's not a natural process. And so, yes, we should do what we can to to mitigate it. But where do you draw the line? Yeah, it'll be a challenge, I think, for future park managers as, as it becomes more obvious and evident that, that uh, like, if we see dramatic decline in sequoias, for example, it'll accelerate this conversation. No doubt, no doubt. You know, and when you talk about climate change, you, you can't help but talk about refugia. I mean, we're kind of touching on that now in a, uh, a way. Um, refugia, places where species, both plant and animal, um, possibly can escape climate change impacts. I know over at Devil's Postpile National Monument, um, south of you guys, uh, the park superintendent, uh, I interviewed her some years ago, and she was working on their general management plan. And part of her intent was to see that the monument provided refugia because it did seem to be a cold sink of places that perhaps could withstand it. What work is the Conservancy doing um, in exploring places in Yosemite that might be refugia for species such as the fishers? Well, there's been a lot of wildlife research that we have funded through our donors in recent years in, in the park, and that's, we don't really talk about it in, in the light of climate change, but these are species that are kind of on the edge, the uh, Sierra Nevada red fox and, and the fishers and so forth that are uh, really small in numbers. So how do you, we, we really want to know more, how many of them are there? Where are they at? What can we do to protect them and allow them to uh, 
thrive. And bighorn sheep is another, another species that was reintroduced uh, by us in the park service just a few years ago to the central part of the park for the first time in a hundred years. Uh, the bighorns are back in the center of the park. More recently, there was uh, Sierra Nevada red foxes where we had uh, a sighting and then a camera uh, cameras in the winter that were uh, posted on trees and, and they were they were noticed. And then last year we did uh, we had scat dogs that uh, went in and they were able to find the, the scat of mountain lions and red foxes and actually determine down to the individual animal how many animals and red foxes there were. So it's pretty amazing uh, what's possible these days. So it's all about finding out the facts, the research, and so forth. What what is a scat dog? I'm sure a few listeners aren't familiar with that. Uh, it's it's a, a a few dogs that are trained specifically to uh, to scent out uh, mountain lion and red fox scat, and so you know it, it's amazing what they were able to do by patrolling this section of the northeast corner of the park and finding where these animals were. And then when you collect when you find the scat, bring it back to the lab, you can really learn more about the animals. And they actually deter- also determined there was some uh, presence of the red foxes south of the Tioga Pass Road, which we didn't think they were that far south on the boundary. So it's pretty exciting that we're able to learn more about it. Is it a particular species of dog or uh, just different species that are trained to uh, detect this type of scat? I can't remember. Um, I don't think there was a specific species that it was tied to. It was like a bloodhound kind of a dog. Interesting, interesting. We're talking today with uh, Frank Dean, the president and CEO of the Yosemite Conservancy, and Corey Gearing, the Conservancy's lead naturalist. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. We're talking today with Frank Dean, President and CEO of the Yosemite Conservancy and Corey Gearing, the Conservancy's lead naturalist. For those not familiar with the Conservancy, it is a nonprofit organization that raises money to help out Yosemite National Park staff in a wide range of activities from research to uh, restoring the Mariposa Grove of sequoias, um, species monitoring, a whole bailiwick of, of work that you do there, Frank. How do you decide what to do? Well, the way we work on this is uh, and we're joined at the hip of the Park Service. You know, we're partners. And so, in fact, next week we are looking at our grants. Park submits a list each year to us in the fall uh, for grants for the following calendar year. And these are their priorities that they've vetted as a, as a management team, and they decide what, what they think they, we could use some help on. So it's pretty exciting. We're, we just got the draft list today, and, and we're going to be working on that uh, with our committee. A, board, a subset of our board is a committee that reviews these each year. So the, the nice thing about it is the priorities kind of are set by the Park Service, but then we determine what's fundable through donors. Uh, some things are... Uh, maybe a tougher sell than others like wastewater plants or something like that, but uh, I was going to say, parking lots. but uh, you know, we, uh, the park has sort of learned what's, what's uh, appealing to us. And so it's a, it's a pretty smooth operation each year. This year, it's about uh, $12 million in support that we're providing to Yosemite National Park. You know, that's incredible. And, and you go back to the restoration of the Mariposa Grove. And I, I think you guys contributed $20 million towards that. Correct. That's right, $20 million, and the park matched that uh, with the federal funds. So, so it, was an, it was the biggest project to date for us and uh, total transformation of the Mariposa Grove experience. Well, let me ask you a, a difficult question, perhaps, Frank. I mean, you're, you're on both sides. You worked for the Park Service for a long time. Now you're working for Yosemite Conservancy. You guys raised, you know, $20 million for that one project, the Mariposa Grove. You go across uh, the country over to Grand Teton National Park and the Grand Teton National Park Foundation raised upwards of $20 million for um, the Jenny Lake area and restoration of the trail system up there and the, um, the front country footprint. Is that something that friends groups should be doing? Isn't that Congress's role to see that these areas are, are maintained properly? And, and shouldn't Congress be giving the Park Service the funding to do this? Well, ideally, they, the park should be, you know, fully funded to the extent that is needed by, by the federal government. There are federal areas. But as you know, you know, parks are not as high a priority as, as with all the, all the demands and the needs that uh, the country has. So whether it's social services or national defense or education. So parks have done pretty well from a funding standpoint on the federal side, I will say. Uh, and, you know, there's this new Great American Outdoors Act fund that is really capital spending backlog maintenance. And again, those are projects that are probably not in our wheelhouse. You know, there is literally a wastewater treatment plant on that list for Yosemite and major renovations to the Iwani Hotel, structural seismic renovations that we would, would be beyond our means, to be honest. So I think it's a good, or redoing the Glacier Point Road. So these are these are federal, you know, inherently federal projects, and they're going to take care of those finally. 
Um, what we do is try to make the difference, you know, where that sort of distinction is the Mariposa Grove was always a gleam in the eye of park managers to try and restore, but it was a little bit beyond their grasp and it was beyond our grasp too when we first started. But together over time, we were able to, uh, to make that goal. So I think that it's, it's good to have the partnership. Uh, again, we can also bring maybe some of the best design to the table. Uh, we're not beholden to government contracting processes and, you know, we can bring in sort of fresh eyes and talent to, to look at an issue and a project to, to the park and, and do it quicker. So I think there's, there's some, you know, we both have our strengths and it seems to be uh, working well. One of the unique things that the Conservancy has going for it is you don't rely on retail sales to generate the funds that you turn around and give to the Park Service. You have cultivated a very wide and, and dedicated core of donors who believe in the work that you do and the work that you're able to do in Yosemite. That's true. And we, our business model has been fortunate during the pandemic because even though our, our retail stores were closed, our, our stores are relatively small compared to the concessioners. So most of our uh, revenue comes from our loyal donors. And it's uh, we're fortunate that we have such a great cause in Yosemite and uh, people love it and they want to help it. And they want it to be there when they go back and visit again. So we, we didn't miss much of a beat uh, last year. And uh, so we're, we're fortunate. We we did have it. We took a hit on our retail side, but but it was more than offset by the by the donations. Now going back to climate change and its impacts on the park and the resources in the park, some of the work that you've been able to finance is uh, studies into amphibians and possible refugia, I believe, in Yosemite as well as uh, bird species. Corey, what can you tell us about that work? Yeah, that's some of the most exciting work that I think Yosemite Conservancy has been able to fund. You know, since funding this year in 2021 and many years prior, we've funded amphibian research into uh, endangered species such as the Yosemite toads, um, yellow-legged frogs, and then also a um, another species not endangered but uh, the red-legged frog. It's a really exciting work that we've been able to team up with not only the National Park Service, of course, but also with the um, San Francisco Zoo as well. So we've um, uh, looked at yellow-legged frogs that have used to be prevalent throughout the High Sierra here, but uh, with the introduction of fish into High Sierra lakes, which are actually non-native, we've seen sharp declines in yellow-legged frogs. And uh, we've been able to team up with the San Francisco Zoo to raise yellow-legged frogs and reintroduce them uh, to some of the high alpine lakes. Also with that, um, Yosemite toads as well. Um, they're a target species that have been found to be especially vulnerable to climate change and drought. Uh, we're funding studies on those to, to, to see how they're being affected. And a real success story, I think, is our, our red-legged frog research that we funded and also reintroduction. Um, Red-legged frogs uh, were uh, reintroduced in 2016 with support from donors. Uh, we turned our attention to this species because it's a species that's actually been absent from the park for half of a century. Uh, this is the, the red-legged frog that Mark Twain wrote about, the uh, uh, jumping frog of Calaveras County. Right. And right. yeah, um, but yeah, through uh, donor support, we've been able to uh, raise red-legged frogs uh, at the San Francisco Zoo and bring them here to Yosemite and reintroduced uh, thousands of red-legged frogs to Yosemite. And this is a real success story. You know, as we're seeing 
amphibian populations decline worldwide, we're seeing red-legged frogs coming back here in Yosemite National Park. We had a, a story a few weeks ago about uh, non-native invasive fish in the park system. And um, one of our readers was surprised to learn that a lot of the high Sierra lakes never did have fish originally. And they were brought in to give anglers another destination. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I imagine to, to you have to remove those fish from the lakes, right? They do. It's uh, been a little controversial, but uh, it's just even the few people on our board that like to fish. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you just pick certain lakes and, and, and they do eradicate the fish there and make, the, make it safe for the frogs to come back. And, you know, as you said, Kurt, above the, uh, the rim of Yosemite Valley, there, were, there pretty much were no trout, native trout in, uh, in Yosemite. So, you know, fishing game years ago started dropping fish out of plains into those lakes and actually started with the Buffalo soldiers and the Army early rangers with coffee cans of trout fingerlings, and they would dump them out on their patrols into creeks and streams, lakes. And so now you got to go out and, and remove those fish and then bring in the, the frogs and let frogs do what frogs do. What about chytrid fungus? Is that still a, a major concern out there? Yeah, definitely a major concern. We've seen lots of effects of chytrid fungus on our amphibian populations. Um, we've actually funded scientific research uh, to determine through DNA, through environmental DNA, areas that we can reintroduce frogs that uh, won't be as vulnerable to chytrid fungus. So really seeing some, some fascinating research in that, in that department. That is amazing. Um, so, so yeah, some of the yellow-legged frogs are uh, resistant to it. So they're able to identify those and, and actually help uh, rear them in, in captivity and then get them back into the lakes. It's amazing. You know, and with, with climate change, um, it's affecting habitat of native species and you're seeing invasive species move in and i've always wondered how long it takes an invasive species to become a native species um what's going on with with bird habitat in yosemite is climate change greatly impacting uh the conditions there for your native species we are seeing climate change uh, affects you know uh habitat of native bird species this year in 2021 and prior years yosemite conservancy um, has been funding MAPS research programs here, uh, determining bird population and uh, shifts in populations and shift in migration patterns uh, here. We also funded um, research for uh, spotted owls to just see how spotted owls react to these large wildfires that are burning through our forests and how populations react to that. So yeah, there's continuing research on how climate change is affecting bird populations here in the park. Any outcomes that you can point to yet, or is it uh, still underway as far as de determining how the species are being impacted? Some of the research we can point to is specifically with spotted owls and, and seeing how they can uh, thrive in some of these wildfire areas. So some positive research coming uh, from that. Now, Frank, you mentioned the return of the, the bighorn sheep. Um, I guess fishers are doing better in the park. Some years ago, I think it was in the 70s, there was a story about national parks that were losing species, that were losing native species. And uh, unfortunately, I can't recall it exactly, but I, but I think Yosemite, I don't know if it was 25 or 30% of the native species were gone. 
Are you guys familiar with that that research and are there efforts underway to try and bring back some of those species? I mean, obviously the grizzly bear, I don't think many people in California want to see the grizzly bear back in Yosemite. Um, I wouldn't mind it. Um, I was just up in Yellowstone and we had a grizzly bear come through our camp and we didn't encounter it in the flesh, but uh, it's always nice to know that they're out there. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that report, but it is, I mean, there has been habitat and loss and, and species lost over the years and, and uh, we're sort of trusting the uh, the park managers to come to us with, you know, what's possible to to uh, make a difference as far as frogs or red foxes, things like that. How do, how can we get in the sheep to bring them back? Yeah, it's it's a challenge. We did we did get a uh, a, a Yellowstone uh, wolf down here uh, earlier this summer. If you've heard about that, it was one of the Oregon wolves. Yeah, it was amazing that he passed through Yosemite. And uh, got as far as Monterey, California, was I was last heard from over there. But we'll, we don't believe wolves were native to uh, Yosemite. But uh, it was interesting this guy made it that far south. Yeah. Some years ago, I reported on a story that pikas, those small rodents that send out that high-pitched shriek of sorts when alarmed, were being forced to up and out of their mountain habitats because of warming temperatures. But I guess there are more recent studies that show that's not necessarily true. Is that right, Corey? Yeah, that's correct. In 2014 and 15, Yosemite Conservancy funded studies of climate change impacts on alpine ecosystems, uh, basically through the lens of the American pika, uh, specifically looking at food availability. And this was you know, building on a recently completed five-year U.S. geological survey project uh, focused on food availability in Yosemite for uh, pikas. And the thought was, the hypothesis was that with climate change, this is a species that's sort of at the top of the range in the alpine environments and they wouldn't have habitat to go to any higher and therefore could be a species of, of concern. Um, recent studies are showing that pikas are less vulnerable to climate change than originally hypothesized. Um, so far they can, they can find basically micro habitats and micro climates in the alpine where they can stay cool and find adequate food. So, you know, it's, it's a species that's showing us, you know, how, how some species can adapt to climate change and uh, maybe a lens on ourselves on how we might have to be adapting for climate change in the future. Exactly. Now, I'm curious, um, you've got a wide range in elevation there at Yosemite. Is there any one part of the park that your work is more focused in, in terms of, of, of wildlife studies and research? Is, is the alpine area more of a concern than, than down low? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think we, we focus a lot on the alpine because it is such, you know, a, a unique environment, a unique life zone. Uh, you know, looking at these um, alpine plants that live at certain elevations that have certain growing seasons, need certain climates. Um, but then we also can look down at uh, lower elevations, you know, between five and 7,000 feet. This is the elevation that sees lots of wildfire that's seeing drier environments. Uh, climate change is affecting every life zone. So yeah, it's hard to say if we focus more on one life zone than another. Um, I think we're looking at it all. You know, Yosemite in our, in our national parks, they're, they're a, an exposed vein, if you will, of the earth that that we're keeping a pulse of. Uh, Yosemite Conservancy donors and scientists and, and employees here, we're, we're looking at every life zone and keeping a pulse and keeping a record of, of what is changing and how 
you know, how the, these ecosystems will be affected in the future with the ongoing human impact of climate change. Frank, what do you find from your donors? I mean, do they have a, a, a particular niche they want to support? Well, I think they, they are drawn to the charismatic species, you know, and I, I think the park probably uh, steers some grants our, our direction. They know that we, we might find appealing. One one thing I'm just to piggyback on what Corey was saying is and sort of the refugia and is the the great gray owls, which is uh, a species that's quite notable for you. So I mean, we have the, we have the the most significant population uh, in, in the southern range of the great gray owls. So just to give you a sense of the of the condition of Yosemite overall, we always hear about the crowds and the and how busy it is, but 97% of the park is wilderness. So because most of the Sierra is is national forest versus national park. And there's been a lot of logging, you know, in the last 30 years in, in the national forest. The next viable population of great gray owls out north of Yosemite is in Oregon. So, you know, that just speaks about how important Yosemite is. And a few years ago, we were able to buy uh, a 400 acre meadow prime habitat for the great gray owls uh, right on the edge of the park boundary uh, near the Hetch Hetchy area of the park. And we were working with the Trust for Public Land. We were able to purchase that property and add it to the park. So it's basically a, a meadow, as you know, is, is like an oasis in the desert. And it's it's an oasis in the forest, really. But it, uh, that's where the owls are. They're hanging out on the edge of that meadow. And we're actually taking on a big project in the next three years. The meadow had been grazed, but it was still, you know, great habitat for uh, owl hunting, but uh, for owls to hunt. But it, but it now will be restored, the meadow itself, um, which was impacted by cattle, will be also restored uh, to for hydrological reasons. So, uh, as far as your your donors, do do most of your funds come in with a specific project in mind, or or do you get, hey, I'm going to give you guys money, you spend it the best way you think? Yeah, you know, ironically, it's mostly the latter, where people say, uh, we just want, we, we like what you're doing. Uh, please uh, put my money to good use. Uh, we don't get a lot of uh, sort of targeted donations. We get some uh, from major donors and say, I really want to support this youth program or I really want to help uh, buy horses for the Ranger Patrol this summer. But that's actually more the exception than the, than the rule. Um, so we're fortunate that we have the flexibility from our donor base to uh, put the money in, to, to use to that list of projects the park provides us. You know, Corey, you had mentioned the uh, research in the Alpine area of the park. Um, another story the traveler reported on recently was how warming temperatures were affecting glaciers in national parks in the Pacific Northwest at uh, Mount Rainier, North Cascades, Olympic, what what have you. What about Yosemite's glaciers? I mean, I was just drove through Grand Teton, and it seems that <clears throat> their glaciers are quickly disappearing. How, how are those in Yosemite faring? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we looked at glaciers a lot for for climate change and sort of indicators of climate change. And uh, glaciers have been studied here in Yosemite for over 150 years. You know, we've had famous naturalists like John Muir and Joseph LeConte, uh, Francis Mathis that have all studied glaciers here. And those glacial studies continue uh, with help from Yosemite Conservancy. Um, we have two glaciers in the park. There's the Lyle Glacier and the McClure Glacier. Uh, the Lyle Glacier is the largest in Yosemite and the second largest in the Sierra. And uh, what we've seen in recent years uh, from research from our park geologists and scientists here is that the Lyle Glacier has actually stopped growing. 
And a big definition, a major definition of a glacier is that it has to grow. So therefore, the Lyell Glacier is no longer a glacier. Um, so we're projecting, scientists are projecting that in the next 10 to 20 years that glaciers will completely disappear from Yosemite National Park. Wow. When you say the Lyle Glacier is the, the largest in, in Yosemite, and I think you said the second largest in California, how many football fields is it? Oh, that's a great question. I don't, I don't have the exact <laughs> numbers in front of me. Um, but I will say we do uh, lead a trip every year, actually, through Yosemite Conservancy Outdoor Adventures up to the Lyle Glacier. You can go up and see the glacier for yourself and, and, uh, and eye it out and see just you know, the changes that are happening there. It's, it's amazing to go and, and, and view it for yourself. It's probably not that big, Kurt. It's probably a couple football fields now in size. It's, it's really shrunken yeah. down. One of the things that we did find to the research was they found some of the early markers that John Muir had placed. He had put some wooden stakes on the Lyle Glacier and uh, tried to see if it was going to move over time. And uh, partly because of melting, but also just because, again, of the research went up there and looked at it more carefully they actually found some of those original stakes that were still there. Wow. That is amazing. <clears throat> you know, we're running out of time, but one other, um, one or two other things I want to touch on, you know, you fund a lot of research in the park, um, both on climate change and, and other issues that, that come up, but education is also a big part of the work you guys do. I mean, as Corey said, taking out field trips and Frank, you mentioned working with youth. I mean, that's a, a big part of your, your operation, right? Oh, for sure. And, and Corey's our need, our lead naturalist and, uh, you know, heads up our, uh, our naturalist program where we do outdoor adventures. And, uh, these are like going on hikes with the experts that know the park, like the back of their hand, but we also do programs. We fund programs, uh, primarily for youth to, get them uh, their first experience in, in the national parks like Yosemite. So probably almost a million dollars a year in our, of our grants to, the, to Yosemite go towards youth programs and often they're to people of color and, and kids that have not had the opportunity to maybe go to visit a park on a, on a summer vacation with a family. So we're really excited about supporting that kind of work and, and uh, it it's continues to grow. It is important and it actually goes back to our our early days, uh, we were established in 1923 as the first nonprofit in National Park. And it was really established to build the, the Yosemite Museum, which is still in operation today, but also was to create uh, educational programs. So we're still carrying on that, that flame today. You know, along that line, I believe you're also um, helping out with the Bridal Vale Visitor Center. Well, there's there's a couple of projects. There's there's Bridal Veil Fall Restoration, which is Restoration. the base of the falls. All the facilities there hadn't changed since the 1960s, so that that is a 15 million dollar project that we're working on. It's partially it's actually shared funding between the park and, and the conservancy, so that is um, underway. The the trail work is going to be wrapped up this fall, and the uh, new restroom there with flush toilets for the first time and new signage and so forth will all be. Uh, finished up early next year. So that's pretty exciting. And then the uh, the new Welcome Center in Yosemite Valley will be starting construction or actually they'll start, the, yeah, they'll start construction this fall. And that is a, uh, basically they've consolidated a lot of the day use parking in Yosemite Valley to this one location. So the first building you encounter is this uh, Welcome Center, it will be. And it's actually an existing building that's being rehabbed. It's an old retail store that uh, was removed from the concession contract. So they'll rehab it into a uh, visitor center and uh, 
We're excited to see. I just heard this morning that the bids came in at a reasonable number, which is always good to see in mountain construction. It's kind of surprising in light of the, uh, the lumber industry. <laughs> I know. We're, we, we're, we're really surprised. We got a thumbs up this morning uh, that it looks like it's a go. So we're happy about that. That's great. Well, Frank and Corey, it's been great visiting with you and, and learning more about uh, the good work you're doing on the ground there in Yosemite. And uh, it makes me want to plan a trip out there to go out in the field with you guys and uh, see some of these things firsthand. Great. Well, we'd love to have you come down and uh, we'll make sure you, you we keep you posted on our progress and all these exciting projects. Please do. Please do. We've been talking today with Frank Dean, President and CEO of the Yosemite Conservancy, and Corey Gearing, the Conservancy's lead naturalist. He's the guy who's going to take you out into the park and explain all the wonders that are to be holding out there. Isn't that right, Corey? That is correct. All right. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, and we'll look forward to catching up down the road to, to report on some of this research and some of those projects that you've got underway. Sounds great. Thanks, Kurt. All right. Thank you so much, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can help the Yosemite Conservancy accomplish its mission at Yosemite National Park with a tax-deductible donation or by purchasing an item from their store. Visit the Conservancy at yosemite.org. Next week, Lynn Riddick will be visiting with the staff at George Washington Carver National Monument to learn more about that incredible agriculturalist, inventor, and humanitarian. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. 
This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.